We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Away we go, episode 87 of the Al Galdi podcast, the Jerry Smith episode. May he rest in peace. Very sad what happened to Jerry Smith, but a salute to the greatest tight end in Washington history on this Friday, June 18th, 2021. This is a loaded show. This is a pay-per-view caliber show. I should be charging $49.99 for this show. But luckily for you, I am not. Who am I kidding? I would never do that to you. But not one, but two guests on the show. Former Old Dominion football head coach Bobby Wilder and Washington Post columnist Barry's Verluga. Wilder, he was Taylor Heineke's head coach at ODU, remains tight with Taylor, recently spoke with Taylor, and reached out to me about some things that Taylor had to say. You don't want to miss this. And then with Barry's Verluga, he wrote a column on what should be next for the Wizards off them parting with Scott Brooks. So we'll talk about that, and we'll talk Nationals. Huge weekend coming up for the Nats. Four games over three days against the National League East leading New York Mets at Nationals Park. I have for you the audio of Ron Rivera's latest comments on the Washington football team's quarterback competition. I'll get to that next segment, including the extent to which Don Ron is dissing Kyle Allen. What is the deal? Between Ron and Kyle, what happened between Ron and Kyle? Also, Rick Carlisle resigning as Dallas Mavericks head coach. I want to talk about that. That's good news for our head coach needy Wizards and that Carlisle is an attractive candidate. But this also is bad news for the Wizards and that there now are six other head coaching vacancies in the NBA. We've been discussing the Washington football team's quarterback competition. There also now is very much a competition for quality head coaching candidates in the NBA with all of these vacancies. And I will give you my thoughts on the Orioles' latest loss 
10-3 the final at the Cleveland Indians on Thursday afternoon, extending the Orioles franchise record road losing streak to 19 games, although that's not as bad as what's going on with another team in Major League Baseball. Believe it or not, things could be worse for the O's. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Joe Rosnowski off my chat with Tarek El-Bashir of The Athletic DC on Tuesday's installment of the podcast, episode 84. Tarek and one of our good pals, Washington football team insider Ben Standing of The Athletic DC, co-authored an article that came out on Monday about the process by which the Washington football team will arrive at a permanent name. Writes Joe, maybe Ben and Tarek cover this in their article, but how does Arkansas have a monopoly on the name Razorbacks or any franchise on a nickname for that matter? Keep up the high standard. Your listeners appreciate all your hard work. Well, thank you, Joe. Uh, So I'm not a lawyer, and if you're listening right now and you are a lawyer, feel free to correct me on this or add to what I'm about to say, but the answer is trademarks. Uh, You can trademark a sports team name. Sports teams are essentially businesses. It is considered a common practice, right, to trademark the name of a business to prevent abuse or misrepresentation of the business by people. You don't want people cashing in on your business's success and or notoriety. So you trademark the name of your business. That's what happens in sports. Email from John Safran. Great podcast, reminiscent of your five to seven radio show. Yes. uh, Thank you, John. Appreciate that. Uh, I enjoyed doing the 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. show very much. Of all of the time slots that I got thrust into because the geniuses running things could never get their act together, that was the time slot that I enjoyed the most. That was the show that I enjoyed the most. And that was the show that I know people enjoyed the most. The idea behind this podcast, to be honest with you, has been to recreate that show. But to do it bigger and better and your continued support of the podcast is very much appreciated. If you're not already a subscriber to the pod, uh, please consider subscribing. Doesn't cost you anything. Also, if you have the time, and this doesn't take much time, please give the podcast a five-star rating and just write like a one-sentence review. Doing those things helps out the podcast a lot. But continues, John, in his email, your comments regarding a monosyllabic strategy for the name are spot on. Let's keep a DC flavor. Washington Judge or Washington Congress, two syllables, or Washington Senators, three syllables. Those of us who grew up with Frank Howard and Eddie Brinkman and Paul Casanova and Camilo Pasquale and the parallel in time, Bill McPeak and Sonny and Charlie Taylor and Bobby Mitchell and Len Haas, why not appreciate your expertise? You are a mensch. Uh, Thank you, John, again. So I can't say that I'm a fan of those names. I like Washington Judge and that it's one syllable, but that's not a great name for a team. Washington Congress, I mean, nobody likes Congress these days. Has our opinion of Congress ever been lower? And Washington Senators, of course, has already been used, although you can abbreviate Senators to Sens. But for me, and all of this is so subjective, but the names that I like the most are Washington Warhawks, Washington Red Wolves, and Washington Warriors, although like Senators, right, Warriors already has been used by a major pro sports team. Oh, and uh, Washington Belters. No, just kidding. Just kidding. I'm kidding about Belters. All right, everybody calm down. Well, when it comes to the name of the Washington football team, I know that many of you wish that the name of the team was still the Skins. If you are having an issue with your skin, not the Skins, but your skin, always know 
that one of the great supporters of this podcast, Dr. George Verghese, is there for you. He is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. And specific to that, Dr. George Verghese and his institute offer something that is a game changer, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, effective, and non-surgical. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You do have options. SRT is an option, and Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, before we get to my conversation talking Taylor Heineke with former Old Dominion football head coach Bobby Wilder, we do now have the audio of the most recent comments from Ron Rivera, Don Ron on the Washington football team's quarterback situation. So on Thursday's installment of the podcast, I talked about what Ron said to Washington football team insider Ben Standig on Wednesday. Ron, again, talking up a quarterback competition and again framing that competition as a two-man battle between Ryan Fitzpatrick and Taylor Heineke. Well, we now have the audio, and it's worth listening to this because the context matters. You can hear Ben's chat with Ron in its entirety in the latest episode of Ben's podcast, the Standing Room Only podcast. Ben did a really nice job. But here's how Ron put forth his latest framing of the quarterback competition as just a two-man battle. Ron was asked about which player Ron is most interested in seeing at training camp from both his perspective as Washington's head coach and head of football operations. So this was an open-ended question that wasn't at all about the quarterbacks, at least if Ron didn't want the question to be about the quarterbacks. Ron turned the question into being about the quarterbacks and completely froze out Kyle Allen. Again, Ron was asked about which player Ron is most interested in seeing at training camp from both his perspective as Washington's head coach and head of football operations. Here was the first part of Ron's answer. Well, um, first and foremost, the most obvious person we're, we're, we're going to look at is going to be our quarterback position. Um, and there's two people that, that we're going to be watching closely. And, 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 and both Ryan and, and Taylor are, are two guys that are very valuable, very important to us going forward. Um, so we'll be watching both those guys and watching their progress very, very closely. I think it's, it's going to be a very competitive battle. I think both guys you know, want to be the guy. Uh, and that's going to be important to us as, as we go forward. All right. And then Ron went on to talk about some other aspects of the team. But Ron, in the initial portion of the answer, said, quote, 
first and foremost, the most obvious person we're going to look at is going to be our quarterback position. And there's two people that we're going to be watching closely. Both Ryan and Taylor are two guys that are very valuable, very important to us going forward, end quote. Zero mention of Kyle Allen, zero acknowledgement of Kyle Allen. Ben then asked a follow-up question about why Kyle Allen isn't a part of the mix. Ron didn't say why, but did say, quote, I've always kind of felt that way going into it, end quote. And then Ron said what we talked about on Thursday's installment of the podcast. He made it clear that Fitzpatrick is the number one quarterback for the time being, but also very much talked up the quarterback competition. Here was the initial portion of Ron's answer to Ben's follow-up. I've always kind of felt that way going into it. I, I, I know, you know, Ryan has the job right now and, and um, it's his to have. You know, I'm not going to say his to lose. I think that's the wrong way to look at things. It's his to have. And so, you know, he goes out and does the things that he's done in the past that do the things that we saw in, 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 in OTAs and minicamp, the way that he's, he's, he's built a rapport with his teammates on, on both sides of the ball. I think that's important. And so we'll see. But I'm not going to discount Taylor. Um, the things that Taylor did last year, uh, the momentum he built up as a player, um, you know, you, you've got to give them uh, equal opportunities and equal chance. And, and that's what I want to do. I want to create that here. I, I, I think it's important. It's important for everybody to see it. Players, coaches, um, I think that's, that, that's how you develop your football team. Okay, so Ron on Fitzpatrick versus Heineke. Quote, Ryan has the job right now and it's his to have. I'm not going to say it's his to lose. I think that's the wrong way to look at things. It's his to have. I'm not going to discount Taylor. The things that Taylor did last year, the momentum he built up as a player, you've got to give them equal opportunities and equal chance, end quote. And I thought that was significant, that phrase of you've got to give them equal opportunities and equal chance. There are words and there are actions. The actions matter much more than the words. We'll see if Ron's actions come training camp adhere to those words. You've got to give them equal opportunities and equal chance. You know, you, you've got to give them uh, equal opportunities and equal chance. Yes, there it is. But going back to Kyle Allen, what happened here? What has happened to Ron's love for Kyle Allen? I have called Kyle Allen the new Colt McCoy, i.e. Kyle was to Ron as Colt was to Jay Gruden. We can't say that now, right? Ron, in March 2020, traded a 2020 fifth-round pick to the Carolina Panthers to get Kyle Allen. Ron, in December 2020, talked up Kyle Allen as having been capable of putting Washington in the exact same spot that Alex Smith put Washington last regular season. And now, months before training camp even begins, Kyle isn't even a factor in a quarterback competition that's seemingly being promoted more and more each day by Ron. Again, Ben asked a follow-up question about why Kyle isn't a part of the mix. Ron didn't say why, but did say, quote, I've always kind of felt that way going into it, end quote. I've always kind of felt that way going into it. Yeah, I mean, that's really telling, isn't it? What the heck happened between Ron and Kyle? And by the way, this doesn't seem to be a health thing. Kyle seems to be tracking just fine off his injury. 
from last season. The dislocated left ankle and reported small fracture that he suffered in the loss to the New York Giants at FedEx Field in Week 9. What happened here? Why is Ron so down on Kyle Allen? Why has Ron soured on Kyle Allen? I'm interested in your theories on this. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Well, if Kyle wants to get back in the good graces of Don Ron, Kyle should call one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland of Real Broker. John G will know what to do because John G and Don Ron share a common bond. Whereas Ron Rivera has position flex, John Grandland has commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, you have position flex. John G has commission flex. If you need to sell your home, want to sell your home, have been trying to sell your home and aren't satisfied with how things are going, contact John Grandland and ask him about his commission flex. Not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same commissions? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, you shouldn't have to pay 6%. Let John put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, i.e. commission flex, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right. For free, some conditions apply. Interviewing John Grandland is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly, and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Grandlin to sell your home guaranteed. That's right, guaranteed. He guarantees the sale of your home. Call John G at 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. Make sure you tell him that Al Galdi sent you and that you want to hear more about what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast. The Commission Flex. You can also visit John Grandlin online at johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the master of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron, just like Position Flex. So as we continue to wonder about and ponder the Washington football team's quarterback situation, very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, a man who knows Taylor Heineke well, former Old Dominion football head coach Bobby Wilder. He was ODU's head coach from 2009 through 2019. Heineke was a quarterback for ODU from 2011 through 2014. It was with Coach Wilder and Heineke that ODU made the transition from the FCS to the FBS beginning with the 2013 season. It was with Coach Wilder that Heineke in 2012 won the Walter Payton Award as the best player in the FCS. Coach, it's great to talk to you again, man. How are you? Uh, Living the dream, Al. Good to be with you. Thank you. So I know that you spoke with Taylor recently. I know he's bulked up this offseason. Every indication is that he had a very good minicamp, after which Ron Rivera very much talked up a quarterback competition. Uh, What is Taylor's mindset as we're in the midst of this month-and-a-half-long break until training camp? Yeah, well, first of all, you mentioned how how he looks. I, I had a chance to see him. He was down uh, in the Norfolk area a couple of weeks ago, in between the OTAs and the mini camp, and you know, got to spend some time with him. And I tell you what, Al, he looks he looks really, really good. I'm so pleased, happy for him, impressed with what he did 
this off season. He put on 15 pounds of muscle. He knew that he he knew that he needed to. Uh, it's something he had talked to to Scott Turner and and to Ron Rivera about was getting getting some more size on it. He just worked his tail off this off season. He had a personal trainer. He got into some really interesting dynamic strength training that isn't just it isn't about just how much can you lift. It's more about building the right muscles for a for a quarterback because obviously a quarterback needs to use different muscles than say an offensive lineman or a linebacker. So <laughs> excuse me, he really got into that and then we got a chance to talk in depth about um about the OTAs and the mini camp and uh just how he felt about that working with Fitzpatrick. But I, I can tell you this right now, he is he is locked in Al. He is uh, completely focused on the process of being an NFL quarterback. Regarding Taylor having bulked up, putting on these fifteen pounds, was that his idea? Was that the coaching staff's idea? And how much do you think Taylor bulking up might help him to avoid getting injured? Yeah, that was that was by design. I, I talked to him shortly after uh, the Buccaneers game, which he you know he played phenomenal in that game. Threw for three hundred and six yards, rushed for forty six. Um, you know, a couple other balls that are caught. He could have been well over four hundred yards in that game, but he came out of that game out feeling. Um, you know, that was his first real NFL action since um, since the Atlanta Falcons game at the end of the 2018 season when he was with the Carolina Panthers and he just felt like physically uh, he got beat up. Now, keep in mind, he was in, in online classes at Old Dominion and wasn't sure if he was ever going to play again, so he was training, but not the way uh, he would have been had he been with a team and um you know, on a program every single day. So he came out of the game and he told me, he said, coach, I've got to get, I've got to add muscle. I've got to add weight. Uh, but the key to it, Al, is he did not want to lose any of his quickness or his speed, which he told me he has not. If you think back to that Tampa Bay game, Al, how many times he scrambled for first downs and uh, scrambled on that third and eight and scored that incredible touchdown down the left side of the end zone. He did that because of his quickness and speed. So he's added the muscle. I think he'll better be able to protect himself. uh, And he didn't lose any of his speed or elusiveness. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. To what extent Taylor bulking up may have come at a cost of speed, but if in fact the bulking up did not come at a cost of speed, that's excellent news because that speed that was on display from Taylor and that playoff game against the Bucks really unforgettable. I mean, that touchdown run is already a legendary play in Washington history. It is. I've got my Washington football team t-shirt on right now that says the legend of Taylor Heineken <laughs> to the left pylons. So no, no question it was. And here's the other thing I'll, I'll add, Al, being a, a former quarterback myself and the majority of my life I've coached quarterbacks, been offensive coordinator uh, before I became a head coach is what that mobility does for um, for Scott Turner and how he designs and calls plays that's a game changer because I've had quarterbacks before that um, either through injury or just inability to move, they, they were pocket guys and you had to design your offense strictly in the pocket where I've also had guys like Taylor in college. You mentioned the, the 2012 season when he won the, the Walter Payton award, which is the 
Heisman Trophy of the FCS. He, in that season, Al, he threw for over 5,000 yards uh, and broke Steve McNair's uh, FCS record. He also had a game where he threw for 730 yards, which broke uh, the all-time record. Patrick Mahomes uh, came after him and broke it a couple years later, but um, he also rushed for 500 yards and 10 touchdowns in that season, Al. And, and the reason I bring that up is because as a coordinator, a quarterback coach, now you can start to design some things to attack the perimeter of the defense and, and, you know, use Tom Brady and the Bucks, for example, they're never using any play to design the perimeter of the defense. That's not what Tom Brady does, but with Taylor, now you're forcing that defensive coordinator to have to defend uh, the outside of the pocket as well as the inside. He has that ability to be a dual threat guy. Now, they're not, I'm not saying they're going to come up with design run. My point is more of the naked plays, the bootlegs, the play action to get on the corner, especially with a with a tight end like Logan Thomas, who had five catches for 74 yards in that in that playoff game against the Bucks. You've got some weapons you can get the ball to on the the perimeter, and that helps the run game as well. Well, and his improvisational skills are so impressive, too. I mean, you certainly could do design runs with Taylor, I think, if you wanted to, but just his ability to make something out of nothing, his ability to extend plays, obviously his ability to scramble and turn potential negative plays into positive plays, those things are so valuable over the course of a game and a season. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right, Alan. As you were chuckling myself, because when I would do different coaching clinics when when Taylor was with us and shortly after he left uh, for the NFL and the Minnesota Vikings. Um, coaches would want to know what were the designed run plays we had for Taylor, and they couldn't believe me when I would tell them we didn't have any designed run plays for him. That was all, you know, off the, the zone read option with the bubble screen, those type of things you see out of the spread offense. Uh we wanted him to hand it off or throw the ball, but then occasionally he would keep it, or uh, he'd scramble and take off on a if a if a protection broke down or if somebody was playing drop eight or drop nine coverage again. So we just let we let the rushing yards for him just come naturally. And the only rule I ever gave him was hash number sideline. And what I meant by that was if you take off and run, get to the hash. Uh, if you can't get any further, get down. If you can get to the numbers, get down. If you can get to the sideline, then you don't have to slide. You can just run out of bounds. So it was always hash number sideline. We wanted him, when he was running, working towards the sideline. And a couple of those runs you saw in the playoff game against the Bucks, and, and even in those two late drives he had a couple weeks before against the Panthers, you could see him doing that. He'd take off sometimes up the middle, but then he was working that hash number sideline concept as much as he could. What that does is it cuts down on the number of defenders that that can hit you. And as a quarterback and somebody as elusive as Taylor is, you want to see him run because that really threatens the defense. It forces the linebackers to um, to have to stay in their lane and coverage and not drop as deep. It forces defensive linemen to have to stay in their lane when they rush. So you take some of those edge rushers that are just incredible now in the NFL and, you know, instead of giving them a, a two-way go, which they can have against a guy who's not mobile, meaning they can rush outside or they can spin or, or rip and cut and come underneath. Well, now you got to stay in your lane. you got to, you got to contain when you've got a guy who can scramble like 
Taylor Heineke can scramble. So it changes the dynamics for the defense. Most important thing, though, with a, with a quarterback like him who can run is he's got to protect himself. We're talking Taylor Heineke with former Old Dominion football head coach Bobby Wilder. I don't know if you heard or saw what the Washington quarterbacks coach Ken Zampese said on Monday, June 7th, but he got asked about the keys for Taylor proving that he's more than just a flash in the pan. And Zampese's answer was, quote, stay on the field. The rest of it spoke for itself this past year, end quote. To what extent does Taylor have to modify how he plays in order to stay healthy, or does he maybe not have to modify how he plays? No, I think Coach Zampese is absolutely right. I mean, if you look, if you look back, Al, at the history of Taylor Heineke, start with with the Vikings. He was with the Vikings from fifteen to seventeen, and um, you know that injury was was self inflicted. He he hurt himself. Then he he goes to the Patriots. He's only there for a cup of coffee. Well, then he goes to the Texans. So now this is his thirteenth in 17 and he's playing in a huge game for the Texans at the end of the season he's playing well and he gets a concussion and he's out and then goes to the Panthers in 18 and I'm I'm at that game they're playing uh this is the Cam Newton was hurt they were out of the playoff picture but Ron and uh Ron Revere and Ron Turner who was the offense coordinator at the time and Scott Turner uh was QB coach they wanted to take a good long look at Taylor well he's in the in the Atlanta game and he's playing his tail off in the game right before the half he just gets crushed by a defensive tackle and and tears up his elbow, goes in, gets it, gets it injected, gets a brace put on it, comes out, plays the second half, but uh, he can't play the next week when they play the Saints, and that's when Kyle Allen came in and played, and Kyle had a really good game, so injury cost him time with the Panthers, and then um, I don't really count the Battle Hawks um, deal because he never got to play for them, and then, and then fast forward to this past year with, with Washington, he gets hurt uh, in the playoff game. I mean, making an incredible dive for a touchdown, uh, but hurts his shoulder. So the only thing that's held Taylor Heineke back his entire career is is the injury. So I, I couldn't agree with Coach Zampese more if he can just stay healthy. I mean, he's 28 years old. Um, he's super intelligent. He understands the game. Um, think about this now, Al, since 2015. So he's going into his seventh year uh, of being introduced and working in this in this system, in this uh, North Turner, Scott Turner system. He's on seven years. So, you know, he's, he's a graduate level a student of this system where you take somebody like, um, you know, like a Trey Lance or Justin Field, you know, Mac Jones, all these young quarterbacks that just got drafted in the draft. They're just getting introduced to a playbook. Taylor's on year seven of this playbook. And then you got somebody like Ryan Fitzpatrick, who's, who's a Harvard graduate, 17 years in the league with his ninth team. Um, those are a couple really intelligent guys, by the way, Al, because Taylor's an engineering mathematics major, Ryan Fitzpatrick's from, from Harvard. I mean, those are some high-level conversations that are that are going on between those two. But back to your point and Coach Zampese's point, if he stays healthy, I think he can have a very long NFL career because he is super intelligent. He knows how to play the game. He knows how to protect the football. Uh, and staying healthy means he's going to be in this league for a long time, in my opinion. So we had Ken Zampese's recent comments. We also have the recent comments of Ron Rivera, 
who now multiple times has talked up a Washington football team quarterback competition, has framed it as a two-man competition, Ryan Fitzpatrick versus Taylor Heineke, isn't even bringing up Kyle Allen, and is repeatedly complimenting Taylor Heineke. Many people have been dismissive of this, but the more Ron talks, the more it seems to be the case that there's a real path here by which Taylor Heineke can be Washington's starting quarterback in week one. I know that you coaches sometimes say things for strategic reasons, motivational purposes, etc. But what do you make, coach, of what Ron Rivera has been saying here? Because it seems like there is a window within which Taylor Heineke can assert himself as Washington's starting quarterback. Yeah, if and I'm, I hear what you're saying, Al, about uh, things sometimes we have to say as coaches. And in this situation, Ron... Ron has to talk about Taylor having a fair shot to compete for the job because of, number one, what Taylor did in the playoff game against the eventual Super Bowl champions, and number two, because Ryan Fitzpatrick is new to the organization. This isn't like, um, this isn't like for example, 2018 when he played with the Panthers. That was Cam Newton's team. He was playing for an injured Cam Newton. Um, this isn't Ryan Fitzpatrick's team yet. He hasn't done anything in Washington. And, and I don't say that to uh, take anything away from Ryan Fitzpatrick. I, <clears throat> excuse me, I have no doubt he's going to play well. He's a good football player. But my point is Ron has to be really careful not to hand the reins to Ryan too quickly because he hasn't done anything in Washington yet. He's he's zero for zero on pass attempts. He, he doesn't have any wins or losses yet. There's nothing he's done in Washington yet. So you always have to be really mindful of that as a coach. It's like me in college when, when Taylor Heineke showed up as a freshman. We, we watched him in camp and went, oh my goodness, this kid is going to be special. But we couldn't just hand him the job right out the gate. We had an incumbent quarterback who was really good and had already proven himself and earned the respect of his teammates. And I, I bet, if Al, if you took a microphone around that locker room, um, you, you'd hear a lot of praise for Taylor Heineke about the way he played in the game and playing injured. And I, I guarantee all those guys respect him, especially all those guys on the defense respect him. And when you've got a quarterback that's respected by your defense, you've got something as a head coach. So I think Ron's saying and doing exactly what he needs to do right now, Al, with his quarterback situation. Do you think Taylor has a legitimate chance of being Washington's starting quarterback in week one? Um, I do think he has a legitimate chance, but I think it would take, it would take Ryan Fitzpatrick, um, throwing a lot of interceptions in preseason and not having a lot of productivity, uh, in the drives that he's in. And then of course, Taylor would have to really be, really be good in the times that he plays in the preseason games. And I think more importantly, Al, than that or the preseason who starts is if you look right now at Washington's schedule, uh, they have got one of the toughest schedules in the NFL the first seven weeks of the season. I mean, you've got the Chargers, the Bills, the Saints, the Chiefs, and the Packers. Those five teams in the first seven games, we're talking about playoff teams and then, of course, the Chargers. I mean, now the way the Chargers came on last year and the moves they made in the offseason, I think the Chargers are a playoff team 
this year, in my opinion. And then you throw in the, you know, you throw in the Giants week week three. That's a or week two. I'm sorry. That's a, you know, that's a huge football game right there. So the reason I'm bringing this up, Al, is I think it's going to be extremely important that they get off to a fairly good start in those first seven games. And then conversely, Al, you look at the end of the season. I don't know if you've ever seen this, Al. I have never seen this. Their last five games, it goes Cowboys, Eagles, Cowboys, Eagles. Yep. Yep. And then with the Giants, I don't know what the NFL is thinking by doing that. I mean, you know, it's, it's almost like you're playing a, you know, a home and home. Normally these games are a little spread out, but I, I, I bring that up in the week before that. They play the Raiders, so there's six straight games against teams that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, were not in the playoffs last year to to end the season. But to start the season, that's a really, really difficult schedule to start. So as that affects the quarterbacks, I would always look at that as a head coach. If I had two really good quarterbacks and I would say to my staff, okay, let's analyze this, guys. We've We've got a really challenging start to our season let's make sure we don't lose the team at the start of the year and let's make sure we don't bury a quarterback at the start of the year because obviously everybody wants to blame the head coach and the quarterback when things don't go well well we got 17 games to play so in these first seven weeks let's hold this thing together and and my point out you may see both quarterbacks at that time you may have Ron not necessarily anointing one of them the starter or the guy for the year, he may be talking about, hey, you know, both guys are can help us win, so we're going to get them both ready to play. I, I just think with the way this starts, you have to be really careful as a head coach, and I think that's why he's leaving this open right now to say, hey, th- this is a this is a competition right now. These guys are battling because uh, I think Ron's smart enough to have looked at that early season schedule and said, you know, we got to protect both these guys early on and maybe win some games early with our defense, maybe win some 13 to 10 games early while, while we're establishing who we are as an offense. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. With what Washington is as an offense, of course, the offensive coordinator is Scott Turner. The Taylor Heineke-Scott Turner relationship is a significant one. We know that coaches have their guys. Is Taylor Scott's guy, like is Scott an advocate for Taylor behind the scenes? Because Scott Turner certainly seems to have an affinity for Taylor Heineke. Yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say that he is Scott's guy because, um, you know, he wasn't with Scott in 19 um, or the start of 20. He was out of the league. Now, Scott trusted him enough to call him last summer and say hey look with this COVID make sure you're working out stay in shape I don't know what's going to happen and then as you know Al with that that absolute catastrophe that happened with the Denver Broncos quarterback situation um, everybody in the league got smart and did what what Washington did everybody had their you know their COVID quarterback their emergency guys so uh, Scott knows that Taylor mentally can run his system and run it very well. The, the question was always physically with Taylor, and it was always to, I'll go back again to the point you brought up that, that Ken Zampisi made, it's all about his health. That's the only thing that Scott has not been able to trust with Taylor is will he be healthy? Because when you make an investment out into a quarterback, think about all the time they're, they're spending together in OTAs and mini camp, and you know now they're going to have a preseason. That's a major investment 
in a quarterback. And now all of a sudden, if a guy goes down, uh, that puts you in such a bad way. And, and no better example, no better example, Al, than look out to San Francisco and Jimmy Garoppolo. I mean, here's a quarterback, Al, that three years ago took them to the Super Bowl, had them had them within you know a quarter of football of winning the Super Bowl. Yet here in this past draft, they go they go trade away a lot of draft stock over the next three years for for Trey Lance. Well, why did they do that? They did it because Jimmy can't stay healthy. He, he gets hurt too much. So, and, and certainly Taylor's not the financial investment that Jimmy Garoppolo is. But to all of these quarterback coaches like Zampezi and offense coordinators like Turner, the investment in time is just as valuable to them as as the money is to the owner. I mean, it, it, and I'm talking from a coaching standpoint. The times I coach quarterbacks and was an offense coordinator, all of a sudden you build a game plan around somebody, and then they're not there. That changes everything. So if you can't trust somebody to be healthy, it makes it really difficult. Now, they're banking on Taylor staying healthy this this year. That's why there was these conversations about adding muscle and and, and getting his body in a a much better place. So um, this is certainly a big year. They've certainly invested in him now. They're certainly talking like he's going to be there with the franchise. But, Al, it's all going to come back to can Taylor Heineke stay healthy? No doubt. Uh, one more question real quick. I think you told me this previously. Scott Turner was the only coach who visited Taylor at ODU. Is that correct? That is correct. He came down, Al, it was uh, in March of 2015. Taylor's last year was 14. You know, the draft was coming up in April. Uh, the only quarterback coach that year. Now, we had a lot of scouts and um, some other guys show up, but the only quarterback coach, it was really interesting what he did. He put him he put him on the board. They talked some football. They watched some video. He put him through a workout, and then he took him out to dinner that night to get to know him more as a person. So um, I felt really good about it. Taylor felt really good about that that relationship, and I just think it speaks volumes to, to Scott Turner taking that amount of time uh, to research and investigate a guy that was going to end up being a a free agent signing for him. And and now it's actually paying off for Scott. It's it's paying off for for Ron and for Washington because they've they've got a guy who proved last year in the playoffs that he can play at a high level in the NFL and they've, they've got him for a really good value financially. I'm totally with you on that. Well, I appreciate your time so much. It's so great to get your perspective on all of this. Former Old Dominion football head coach Bobby Wilder, who pulled off one of the more difficult things to do in college football coaching. Take your program from the FCS to the FBS. Coach Wilder did that in addition to being Taylor Heineke's head coach during his time at ODU. Coach, it's great to catch up with you, man. Thank you. Oh, it was awesome, Al. Anytime. Look forward to talking to you again in the fall. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bobby Wilder, our second special guest, Washington Post columnist Barry's Verluga is coming up shortly to talk Wizards and Nationals. But with the Wizards and their head coaching vacancy, it now is one of seven head coaching vacancies in the NBA. There are 30 teams in the NBA. We have seven head coaching vacancies. And of course, we could end up having more. But big news on Thursday, Rick Carlisle out as Dallas Mavericks head coach after 13 seasons. This is said to be a resignation. That's certainly the way that Rick Carlisle is framing this. Carlisle with the Mavericks for 13 seasons, a regular season winning percentage of 537, made the playoffs nine times, including winning the 2011 NBA championship. I think Rick Carlisle is a very good NBA head coach. I would be interested in Rick Carlisle if I'm running the Wizards here. So I hope they at least make the phone call. Like I said on Thursday's installment of the podcast, I want the Wizards to cast a wide net. I want them to talk to a lot of different people. There's no reason not to conduct a vast and thorough search for your next head coach here if you're the Wizards. But you think about these six other head coaching vacancies, and you tell me, how many of these do you consider to be better than the Wizards' head coaching vacancy? Because to me, a good number of these, if we're being objective, are more appealing than the Wizards' job. The Boston Celtics' job is open. The Indiana Pacers' job is open. The Orlando Magic' job is open. The Portland Trailblazers' job is open. The New Orleans Pelicans' job is open. And now the Dallas Mavericks' job is open. And I'm not here to tell you that the Wizards' job is totally unattractive. It isn't. But there are definite questions you have If you are a viable NBA head coaching candidate and the Wizards come calling, you have extreme uncertainty when it comes to Bradley Beal, who can opt out after this upcoming season. You have relative uncertainty with Russell Westbrook, who, by the way, also can opt out after this upcoming season. But even if he doesn't, he has one of the more unattractive contracts in the NBA. And Russell Westbrook is a guy who, yes, is very gifted and very competitive and is a triple doubles machine but who also has a lot of flaws. He's an inefficient player. He's a high usage player. He's also this like force of nature that's all consuming for your basketball team. And that can be a very good thing, but that also can be a not so good thing. The Wizards do have a good number of promising young players, right? You think about Rui Hachimura. You think about Daniel Gafford. You think about Denny Avdia. You think about Thomas Bryant. But the Wizards also have now what seems to be a very unappealing and frightening contract. This Davies Berton's five-year, $80 million deal, which was a complete debacle for the Wizards this past season. So yeah, man, like there are definite pros to the Wizards job, but there are also major cons 
to the Wizards job and do the compare and contrast. I mean, if you're a viable head coaching candidate, would you rather take the Wizards job or the Celtics job, right? You go to the Celtics, you have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. You know, the Pacers job, you go to Indiana, you have DeMontis Sabonis and Karis LeVert. The Blazers job, you go to Portland, you have Damian Lillard. The Pelicans job, you go to New Orleans, you have Zion Williamson. Now the Mavericks job, you go to Dallas, you have Luka Doncic. I mean, would you rather take that Mavericks job and Luka or take the Wizards job and then see Bradley Beal up and leave you next offseason? The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, exactly. I think this could be a tricky head coaching search for the Wizards. They may want specific people, but it's not a given that those specific people are going to want to come here. Ted Leonsis is going to have to pay up to get the guy he wants because chances are the guy or girl who Teddy ends up wanting or who Tommy Shepard ends up wanting is going to be someone who other teams want. And you may have to outbid to get that guy. And even then, that might not be enough. This is not a great NBA offseason in which to be searching for a head coach from a Wizards perspective. You'd much rather this happen in an offseason in which there are fewer head coaching vacancies. Right now, seven head coaching vacancies, and of course, more could be coming. All right, so what now for the Wizards? For the first time in five years, the team is searching for a new head coach. Who will be that next head coach? What should the Wizards be thinking? Very interesting column on WashingtonPost.com headline, The Wizards Need a New Coach and a Higher Standard. And I'm very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast, the author of that column, Washington Post columnist, Barry Verluga, with whom we'll be talking some nationals as well. Barry, it's great to talk to you, man. How are you? Great, Al. Thanks for having me. Yep. Appreciate you coming on. Before we get to the Wizards' next head coach, I would like for your take on this. Why ultimately did the Wizards part ways with Scott Brooks? Most indications seem to be that he was coming back. The reporting is that the two sides couldn't agree on a deal, which suggests that the Wizards wanted him back to at least some extent. What do you think happened here? Well, I mean, I would push back a little bit on that initial reporting about they couldn't come to a deal, only because Tommy Shepard said, let's be clear, this was my decision. And that's a decision made by a guy who had worked closely with Brooks, who considers Brooks a friend, who thought that this was a very difficult thing to do um, on a personal level. Um, but I, after Shepard's Zoom session with reporters yesterday, I was very much left with the impression that um, they thought that in some ways Scott Brooks hadn't maxed out the performance of the rosters over the course of his five-year tenure. Now, saying that, he got tremendous amount of credit for keeping together this group this year through a massive coronavirus problem. Um, the record was 34 and 38, but I think, you know, a 17 and 6 finish and, and holding it together when it could have gone awry um, was one of the reasons why people kind of expected him to be back. But I, I'm just left with the impression that if you take the five years in total, um, even with the wall injury uh, and him not playing for long chunks, and even with rosters that were thin, um, that Wizards management, Shepard included, uh, were left with the idea that to go forward um, to improve on, you know, getting the eighth seed in the playoffs, uh, another another coach was needed. Yeah. And if in fact, that's what Tommy Shepard is thinking, that is a totally reasonable assessment 
of things. So the Wizards are a team that incredibly has not advanced past the second round of the NBA playoffs since 1979. I mean, that that is such a sobering reality. I do want the Wizards thinking big and aiming high. You wrote in the column about the Wizards thinking big. What does thinking big look like to you? To me, it's not just about the coach. And I'm not at all saying that a coach in the NBA can't make a difference. Of course they can. Um, there's examples, you know, Monty Williams in, in Phoenix has turned things around there, a situation where I think a couple of years ago they won 19 games. Um, and now they're in the Western Conference Finals. Um, as you pointed out, something that just doesn't happen in, in Washington. But to me, this is uh, it's an organizational thing. And that's from top to bottom, from Ted Leonsis to you know, as I wrote in the column, that the guy who tapes the ankles. Um, Leonsis made a huge uh, announcement, or what he presented as a huge announcement two summers ago in kind of blowing up the organizational structure and presenting what he was framing as some sort of revolutionary revolutionary way to run a basketball operation. Um, My question at that point, when he brought in, you know, John Thompson Jr., I mean, I'm sorry, the third, and and um, Sashi Brown and, and Maid Shepard, the GM, was, okay, you're, you're doing this kind of organizational overhaul. How is that going to make the ball go through the hole more frequently? Um, and, and more to the point, like, how is that going to extract more wins um, out of your franchise? The, the key to this whole thing is – Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook from a personnel standpoint and maxing out the team around it um, in, in the window that you have them, which is, you know, I mean, Beal, I think everybody would expect him to be extended, but right now next year is the end of his deal. And, and Westbrook only has two more years. And I think there would be serious questions about whether as he gets into his later thirties, you know, you're extending him beyond that. What's his effectiveness at, at that point? So, um, to me, yes, a new coach could inject a new viewpoint, some new energy, but there's a top to bottom thing where if your franchise hasn't advanced to the conference finals since, in, you know, in 42 years, um, it's not, you know, you don't want to just blow smoke about, well, this coach is going to be the one that turns things around. There's a fundamental kind of ingrained um, quality that that has to be addressed um, to alter the results going forward. Regarding Bradley Beal, I do think that there should be an extreme urgency for the Wizards this offseason to where they either double down on Beal and Russell Westbrook and add a third major piece, or they trade Beal because he can opt out next offseason. Do you think the Wizards are legitimately open to trading Beal this offseason? Well, I think you have to get an honest assessment from Bradley Beal about where his head is on that. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, things couldn't change over the course of the season. But, uh, you know, Leonsis has has said um, that they're in lockstep with Bradley, that, that Beal has bought into what they're trying to do here. He certainly had great things to say about playing with Westbrook. So that would seem to be an appealing thing. But as we've seen Al in this league, um, in this league, almost more than any league, um, players have real power and real say in, in where they end up. And there's a reason why Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irvin and James Harden are all on the Brooklyn Nets. I mean, um, players can dictate things more than they can certainly in major league baseball. So if Bradley Beal, I think you have to have the conversation with Beal, look, 
you know, do you plan on opting out? Um, are you in this for the long haul? Here are our plans to build around you two over the next two years. Here's our plans with Russell beyond that. Um, here's how we're going to address our deficiencies, you know, defensively or, um, you know, as a, you know, some sort of scoring big man, um, to me, I don't, I'm not going to stand here and say they should trade Bradley Beal unless they know that Bradley Beal is not in it for the long haul with them, which they have said he, he is. So, um, that's a conversation that they have to have very honestly. Random question about the Wizards' search for a next head coach. We've all seen the names that are already out there, right? Wes Unsell Jr., Sam Cassell, Becky Hammond, etc. You went to Duke. What about Mike Krzyzewski? He's leaving Duke after this upcoming college basketball season. We know he has experience coaching NBA players via the Olympics. Do you think that a phone call to Mike Krzyzewski is one that the Wizards should make? Do you think Krzyzewski would have any interest in being Wizards head coach? You know, that's interesting. I mean, I my gut is the NBA window for him came and went a good 15 years ago. There were flirtations with the Celtics um, a long time ago. If you talk to some of his players, um, some, some I talked to said, you know, if they he really likes Vegas, if they had put an expansion team there, he might have considered it. Um, he's 74. Uh, and so that would have to be a, you know, a, a set a setup where you had a team that was ready to win a championship um i don't think he would dabble this is just off the top of my head like i don't think he would dabble in an nba situation one in a five-year rebuild like that's that's not at 74 i don't think he's entering that he's winding down not cranking up um and and two um i, I just don't think he'd be in it for uh you know, to go 41 and 41. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think that's what he would want to, you know, he doesn't want to be Willie Mays with the Mets, right? right like he, right. If, if he wanted to do it, he'd want to do it to, to, you know, hoist that trophy. Um, unless I'm missing something, this, this outfit isn't ready to hoist that trophy right now. Uh, no, getting past the second round of the NBA playoffs has been hard enough for the Wizards over the last four plus decades. We're talking with Washington Post columnist, Barry's Verluga. So I can't have Jan and not talk Nationals. The Nats have been better lately. Four straight wins, six wins in eight games, up to 30 and 35 on the season. Big four-game series with the National League East leading Mets at Nationals Park this weekend. As you look at the Nats this season, are they a good team that just got off to a bad start? Or are they, in fact, a bad team or, at the very least, a mediocre team? I am really starting to come down on the side of, of mediocre to, to less than that. And, and some of that is, um, if you can, if this team doesn't have Steven Strasburg in the rotation, um, it's less than what it's supposed to be. Uh, and that's not finding fault with anybody, but because he's legitimately hurt. Um, but this team has always been built on, starting pitching the starting pitching that it's built on currently should be max scherzer who's on the il now you know even if he's only going to miss a start strasburg and patrick corbin who was good the other day but has been you know frankly pretty inconsistent and pretty awful in a lot of his starts um so if that part of this team isn't kind of going gangbusters then it's not 
uh, it's just not a lineup that is going to be able to carry them. I, the more I thought about, I, I liked a lot of their um, kind of smaller offseason moves, uh, adding Schwarber on a one-year deal, trading for Josh Bell. Um, I was in favor of all that. But the more I thought about the lineup, which features Trey Turner and Juan Soto, two elite players um, that you really should be able to build around, you're really counting on a lot of rebounds or reclamation projects for this thing to click. I mean, there was a reason that Kyle Schwarber was non-tendered by the Cubs. Could he hit 30 homers? He probably will hit 30 homers, but um, that comes with a lot of strikeouts uh, and and not a real high um, OBP. So, and Josh Bell is another one. Did I expect, I thought they made a good trade, very solid Mike Rizzo baseball trade. But again, you're, you're talking about a guy who needed to turn it around after a down second half 2019 and a lousy 2020. That's an amazingly slow start. He, obviously, he's come to life a little bit more. But, um, you know, if, who's been the more productive first baseman? It's really been Ryan Zimmerman, right, at, at age 36. So um, I Unless the rotation is what it is supposed to be, um, Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin at their best, I, I don't see this team, you know, it could dance around the edges of the race as we get to the trade deadline and beyond. But that's the scary part for the franchise in my mind. You don't want to be in the middle come July 31st. You want to be either clear buyers or clear sellers. And I kind of worry that if they're, you know, if the Mets or somebody doesn't run away, their choice is not going to be very clear, and that would be not very good for the future of the franchise. No, it would not. The Nationals farm system is the biggest big-picture problem to me for the Nats right now. You have Cade Cavalli, who's one of the top pitching prospects in baseball, but beyond him, there's just not a lot happening with this Nats farm system these days. The Nats scheduled the rest of the way until the All-Star break is brutal. If the Nats are still below 500 come mid to late July... Do you see the Nats being aggressive sellers come the trade deadline? I mean, the Max Scherzer thing has been out there. I know that you've written about that, but the Nats have many other guys on expiring contracts. Kyle Schwarber, Josh Harrison, Brad Hand, Daniel Hudson. Do you think the Nats would be aggressive sellers come the trade deadline? Were the Nats to still be a sub-500 team in mid to late July? Well, I think all those players that you just named would would be gone and I, i've advocated for for keeping scherzer because i think he's a, a, a pillar in a, a a way you know he's not just a guy on an expiring contract he's a guy that's uh gonna go into the hall of fame wearing your hat and the idea should be to extend him not not deal him also in part because you know getting a half a the return on a half year of anybody, Max Scherzer included, is not the return on, you know, in 2019 when they were off to a lousy start. And I thought that they should think about dealing at the deadline, um, at least at this point. Um, you'd get a lot more for two and a half years of Max Scherzer than you would for a half year. But to your point, Al, if if this team is below 500 and 10, 11, 12 games out of the um, race in late July, then brad hand and daniel hudson and uh josh harrison and um you know all those you know starlin castro uh kyle schwarber um all those guys should be wearing other uh jerseys the bigger question to me is because you probably can't restock a farm system with by trading away you know rentals that aren't real stars um the question for me would be, 
where are you with Trey Turner? Um, can you trade a year and a half of an elite shortstop for prospects that really would restock your system for players that would be um, on the cusp of being able to surround Soto as you know rising offensive stars uh, in the future. That's a big thing to consider. Um, and it's not as easy as just saying, hey, we're going to trade Turner, because if you look around at a lot of the contending teams, they're, they're, they're set at shortstop. Um, you'd need to be able to build some sort of competition between two contenders that both have need at that position and recognize that Colorado is going to trade Trevor Story, so uh, a contender who needed a shortstop could get Story at a lesser price because he's only got a half a year left. But I, I think you have to be thinking organizationally what is our path to being contenders again in 2022, 23, 24? Um, they haven't re Turner to an extension. If that's not likely to happen, about maximizing your return this summer. I think that makes total sense. The recent trend in Major League Baseball has been that guys in Trey Turner's predicament get traded in the offseason as opposed to in-season, right? You think about Mookie Betts. Francisco Lindor, but if you can get a haul for Turner midseason this season, I would pull that trigger if, in fact, you're not particularly bullish on him resigning with you long term. Do you think that Mike Rizzo would be allowed to trade Trey Turner either this season or this coming offseason? We know what happened in 2018. Rizzo had a deal on the table with Houston involving Bryce Harper, was not allowed by the learners to execute that deal. Do you think that the learners would allow Rizzo to trade away Trey Turner if Rizzo wanted to trade away Trey Turner? I don't think there's the emotional attachment with ownership to Turner as there is with Bryce. I mean, um, remember that Turner is here on Mike Rizzo has made a ton of very, very good trades as the general manager of the Washington Nationals since 2009, but um, pick one that's better than Joe Ross and Trey Turner for Steven Souza in a three-way deal. Um, That was a great, great trade. And I consider Turner to be a homegrown player because he came over as a, a minor leaguer, but with Harper, you know, he just represented a lot. He he was the number one overall pick. He came up in the summer of 2012 when they, you know, won their first division title. He was such a cornerstone of the beginning of the thing that I think Mark Lerner just um, he could not pull the trigger. I would think that if Mike Rizzo, you know, is still has the ability to run his own baseball operations department and said, I believe as a baseball person that this is a a good trade that will make us better going forward. I I don't think that Turner would be um, off the table in terms of of dealing him away. But again, it's it's not as simple. I don't think I could write a column saying you must trade trade Turner because the market has to bear what he's worth and, and finding two teams that would be willing to, kind of bid against each other for a year and a half of Trey Turner um, might be difficult. And you're right. Um, that could, you know, maybe there's more of a market in the off season when there are more kind of musical chairs being played with, with um, more teams involved. Excellent. Well, check out his work at WashingtonPost.com. Washington Post columnist, Barry's Verluga. Always love talking with you, man. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Al. Appreciate you having me. All right, so no matter how bad things ever get in sports or in life, always know 
that things can be worse. As cliche as that is, it is so true. As bad as things may seem, you got to always remind yourself that things can be worse. And so if you are an Orioles fan and you are suffering in what is yet another dreadful Orioles season, say to yourself right now, it actually could be worse. And this, believe it or not, was highlighted on Thursday. So the Orioles lost again, another road loss, 10-3 the final at the Cleveland Indians on Thursday afternoon, a four-game sweep for the O's at the Indians. The Orioles franchise record losing streak now is at 19 games. But also on Thursday was the Arizona Diamondbacks setting a new major league record with their 23rd consecutive road loss, a 10-3 loss at the major league leading San Francisco Giants. Yes, the Orioles lost on Thursday, 10-3 at the Cleveland Indians for the Orioles franchise record 19th consecutive road loss. The Diamondbacks lost on Thursday, 10-3 at the San Francisco Giants for the Diamondbacks major league record 23rd consecutive road loss. That loss for the Diamondbacks, by the way, their 14th consecutive loss overall, their 28th loss in 30 games. The Orioles have the worst record in the American League at 22 and 46. The Diamondbacks, though, have the worst record in Major League Baseball at 20 and 50. Arizona's winning percentage on the season is 286. So, yes, my friends, things actually could be worse for the Orioles, but of course, things are bad enough. Another loss on Thursday. Jorge Lopez was bad again. Lopez in this 10 3 loss at the Indians on Thursday afternoon. Five runs in four into third innings on three homers. He now has an ERA on the season of 595 over 14 starts. Here's all you need to know about how dreadful Lopez and Matt Harvey have been for the Orioles this season. So each guy has made 14 starts. Lopez has an ERA of 595. Harvey has an ERA of 776. Those two guys should rank as the two last guys in the majors in terms of starting pitchers ERA. But neither Lopez nor Harvey qualifies for the league leaders because each guy hasn't thrown enough innings. Now, like I just said, each guy has made 14 starts. So it's not like, you know, they've missed a bunch of time due to injury or anything like that. Lopez and Harvey just haven't thrown enough innings. Start in and start out, each guy gets shellacked. Start in, start out, each guy gets yanked before like the fifth inning. And so here you have each guy having made 14 starts, but not qualifying for the league leaders. That's incredible when you think about that. Lopez, 595 ERA. Harvey, 776 ERA. Each guy's made 14 starts, but neither guy qualifies for the league leaders because neither guy's thrown enough innings. Our friend Steve Spurrier has a saying for this. Not very good. No, no, it's not. Ryan Mountcastle and Trey Mancini, each was good on Thursday afternoon off each having been good in the 8-7 loss on Wednesday night. Uh, Mountcastle on Thursday afternoon, starting DH, number four batter, two out single in the top of the first, two out single in the top of the seventh. Mancini on Thursday afternoon, starting first baseman, number two batter, had a one out single in the top of the third, despite having been down to the count at 1.12 and also had a two-out single on an 0-2 pitch in the Orioles' two-run fourth. But there just ain't much happening with these Orioles this season, as you know by now. This is a tanking team. This is a rebuilding team. It's not about wins and losses this season. I keep saying my mantra for the Orioles, pain now, 
pleasure later. Now, a recent topic when it comes to the Orioles has been the status of the manager, Brandon Hyde. More specifically, his contractual status. You know, it's actually not known what the terms of Hyde's contract are. The Orioles hired Brandon Hyde as their manager in December 2018. The details of his contract have never been reported. Here we are now, what, two plus seasons into his tenure, and we don't know where Hyde is at contractually. Is this a contract season? Is there maybe an option for Hyde next season? We don't know. And the Orioles executive vice president and general manager, Mike Elias, will not say. Uh, Elias spoke to reporters on Wednesday, quote, I'm not going to be the one to spill anyone's contractual status in baseball ops. If and when it gets out, maybe I'll comment or no comment about that. But I don't see any benefit to me revealing the contractual status of the employees in baseball ops, end quote. Now, clearly, Elias is not evaluating Hyde on wins and losses, nor should Elias be evaluating Hyde on wins and losses. This is about player development. It's not about W's and L's, not yet certainly, for the Orioles. But I think we all know how this works. When a baseball team is rebuilding, the guy who is the manager during the rebuilding and has to suffer through all the losing is almost never the manager who is with the team when the team is good. You know, it's always that the (laughs) the manager during the rebuild eats all the L's, and then gets fired, and then the team hires normally a more established manager, and then that guy gets to reap the benefits of the rebuild. We've seen this over and over and over again. We saw this years ago with Jim Leland taking over the Detroit Tigers just as they were ready to get good. We saw this with the Nationals, with Davey Johnson taking over the Nats as they were getting good, and we will see this with the Orioles. I would be stunned if Brandon Hyde is the manager, say, two, three years from now, when the Orioles hopefully are halfway decent again. But this is how it is. You know, Hyde, he knew this when he took the job. You're going to have to deal with this. And chances are you're not going to be here when the team finally gets good again. So hopefully Brandon Hyde is getting a nice paycheck and is gaining experience as a major league manager. And maybe in his second go round as a manager, he can actually enjoy some success. But look, this is tough. All right. I've said this. This is not about wins and losses. You can't look at this season that way. But for those of you who are upset about all of the losses this season, I do understand where you're coming from. There has been a ton of losing for this team, okay? Since the final month of the 2017 season, it's been a nightmare if you're an Orioles fan and you're invested in wins and losses. The Orioles went 4-19 and over their final 23 games in the 2017 season, then went 47-115 and in the 2018 season, which was the final season of the Buck Showalter, Dan Duquette era. The O's then went 54 and 108 in 2019. The O's went 25 and 35 in 2020. And now here we are in 2021 and the Orioles are an American League worst 22 and 46 and in the midst of a franchise record 19 game road losing streak. Next up for the O's, a six-game homestand. Thank God. Uh, Three games against the Toronto Blue Jays, followed by three games against the Houston Astros. Game one against the Blue Jays Friday night at 7.05. Bruce Zimmerman versus the former Nationals prospect, Robbie Ray. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me. But just for now, you can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Another work week in the books, the weekend. Always a good time to catch up on anything that you may have missed. Monday's installment of the podcast, episode 83, a deep dive 
on Washington football team quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick with NFL analytics expert Sam Hoppin, who recently tweeted out a chart that highlighted just how good Fitzpatrick was in the 2020 season with the Miami Dolphins when viewed through the prism of analytics. Tuesday's installment of the podcast, episode 84, included my chat with Tarek El-Bashir of The Athletic DC of Tarek co-authoring an article that came out on Monday about the process by which the Washington football team will arrive at a permanent name. Wednesday's installment of the podcast, episode 85, featured my conversation with Brandon Thorne, the author of the Trench Warfare Substack newsletter. Few people analyze defensive line and offensive line play as well as Thorne does. He gave us great in-depth breakdowns of Jonathan Allen, Matt Ioannidis, Deron Payne, Chase Young, Montez Sweat, Brandon Sheriff, and more. Big weekend for the Nationals with their four games over three days against the National League East leading New York Mets at Nationals Park. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. I've always kind of felt that way going into it. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.